0: Good everyone. You're all very welcome. To this event at the Forum. The Forum for Philosophy is a non profit organisation. We put on events like this once a week and they're always free and they're always open to all um, and you're always very welcome to come along. Um, the reason we're able to do this is because of kind folk like yourself who give money to us via our Just Giving page, which you can find a link to on our webpage. Um, and if you go to our webpage, you'll also find a whole host of podcasts from our previous events and essays from various philosophers. Um, this is also being recorded for a podcast, so please bear that in mind. If you ask a question, your voice will be recorded on the podcast and put out into the internet and available forevermore. Um, and do also wait for a roving microphone to find you if you have a question, so our podcast listeners in the future can, uh, can hear your question. Um, that's more than enough from me. Thanks again for coming, and join me in welcoming our panel for tonight. Good evening. Every strike, argued Lenin, reminds the capitalists that it is the workers and not they who are the real masters, the workers who are more and more loudly proclaiming their rights. Every strike, he said, reminds the workers that their position is not hopeless, that they are not alone. In times of strikes, the worker states his demands in a loud voice. He reminds the employers of all their abuses. He claims his rights. He doesn't think of himself and his wages alone. He thinks of all his workmates who have downed their tools together with him and who stand up for the workers' cause, fearing no privations. Strikes, therefore, he said... Teach the workers to unite. And tonight we unite to discuss the history, ethics, and politics of strikes. I'm Sarah Fine uh, from the Department of Philosophy at King's College London and fellow here at the Forum, and I'm delighted to welcome our panel, Comrades in Arms, tonight. at the far end we've got dr joe grady who's a senior lecturer in employment relations in the management school at the university of sheffield and we have dr martin o'neill who's senior lecturer in political philosophy in the department of philosophy at the university of york and we have dr wasim yakub who's lecturer in the history of modern political thought in the faculty of history at the university of cambridge and he's also a fellow of pembroke college and will soon be joining queen mary here in london Thanks so much for joining us. So I'm going to start with a simple question. What is a strike? And also what makes for a successful
1: strike? Can we start with you, Joe? Yes. Um, so essentially strikes are about power, I would argue. Um, they're about addressing imbalances of power, so sort of power asymmetries. Um, and in capitalist societies, management actions are underpinned by substantial power resources, um, far greater resources than Labour can draw upon. And Strikes in, in, in the context of the UK tend to be um, coordinated by trade unions and are essentially counter controls, if you like, applied by workers to constrain managerial action. So, within this sense, strikes or industrial action as as I might refer to it throughout this um, podcast, refer to things that aren't necessarily withdrawing of labour, are a way of trying to address um, inherent asymmetries of power that exist within the employment relationship. And I think this, in a nutshell, really, is um, why trade unions developed as a mechanism to address power imbalances. Mm. Um, So trade unions, if you kind of want to talk about it really informally, are essentially a um, let's gang up on management club, really, um, to, to address those issues. Because when you submit yourself to the employment relationship, you're submitting yourself to an economic exchange, Um, normally for a wage um but that exchange is directed by a managerial process and it's a process of organizing directing and controlling so when you get a strike ordinarily they tend to happen when there's a battle over those boundaries i mean they can happen around other things but but that tends to be it um so it's no surprise really that um the UK, Great Britain, was one of the first countries to introduce trade union legislation. Um, really, when that happened, Britain was sort of going through its second industrial revolution, really. 1871 was the first trade union act. Um, and the Taft Vale judgment, which I can talk about a bit later, in 1901. But that meant that workers and trade unions wouldn't be held responsible um, for any um, costs incurred during industrial actions. So that was really the development of trade unions and strikes in the historic context here. Um, Elsewhere, you see that the conditions there reflect what developed there. So um, in my research, I've done quite a lot of research on um, organized resistance in Spain, particularly southern Spain, where you see a lot of anarchist organizations, and they develop and resist in lots of diffuse ways that you don't see in the UK because it very much suits the conditions there. Um, Anarchists very much kind of favor the general strike, But it's a very specific ideological concept within the anarchist framework, and it's um, a means by which you would essentially obtain a new world order by sweeping away capitalism, authoritarianism, for a very kind of utopian future society. So that type of struggle very different to the type of struggle that you're seeing at a similar time in a context like the UK. And the only time in which a general strike has ever been attempted here, um, 1926, uh, lasted for nine days. And I think that's because what you see in the UK is that what we get are strikes around a particular issue in a particular industry. Mm-hmm. So, say, 1984, when I was born, mm-hmm. there was the miners' strike, whereas the... the um, the concept of a general strike is much more about a complete reform, not reform through a social democratic process of an individual um, issue, if you like. Um, so I think, you know, that's kind of why we haven't seen it here. If you look at the Labour Party, which you assume would be the um, party most favourable to strikes in the UK at the minute, John McDonnell in his book last year, um, The Economics for the Many, he draws upon the work of M. Pettifor, and she's arguing about a Green New Deal, so that's very different to this idea of a general strike for a climate strike. It's situating the climate within a broader conceptual framework of a deal for the economy. So I just was sort of wanting to draw out the differences between an industrial strike and then that concept of a, a kind of general strike, which I think has quite a historical and specific context within anarchism, which sometimes gets borrowed, actually, in a way that's not necessarily how strikes have happened in the context in the UK. That's really helpful.
0: What do you want to come in at this point? Sure.
2: Um, I think Joe's laid it out better than I could but (laughs) as a historian I, I might say a bit about sort of some of the ways in the past that strikes have been seen from different angles by the socialist movement and by Marxist theorists. So I think Joe's absolutely right. Strikes are about rebalancing relationships of power. So they're about workplaces being sites of struggle between workers and employers against mechanisms of control, of uh, value extraction. Um, but one thing about the way in which British trade union legislation has framed strikes and the political imaginary here is to make us think of strikes as primarily about economic issues, right? Mm-hmm. Confined to specific features of workplace exploitation or wages and pensions, right? So, uh, and that's not historically been the case in the rest of the world or in the UK, Um, And it's important to note that when strike action became a major force to be reckoned with in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the working class movements often combined economic demands with uh, outright political demands. So in 1842, we see in England the first what you could call modern general strike by the Chartists, and that's combined... And that combines economic demands with political demands, right, for parliamentary reform and so on. Now, it's not until 1894 till you get the next strike that's understood as a general strike, and that's in Belgium, and that's the working-class movement striking for suffrage, not primarily economic conditions. So in this sort of dialogue between economic and sort of political goals, at the turn of the 20th century, socialists and Marxists in Europe are trying to think about the significance of the strike. Now, it's interesting to note that someone as closely associated with working-class and socialist organisations as Engels actually thought anarchists like Bakunin, with their attachment to the idea of a strike, were asking workers to sit on their hands. So Engels's view was pretty much that a strike is not going to get working-class power entrenched. You need to move to some forms of insurrectionary sort of action... And a strike is just one part of this panoply of tactics that socialists and Marxists can use. So the general strike for anarchists took on really major significance, as Joe was saying, but for Marxists in, say, the 1900s, it was just one of various weapons and could actually be quite a risky tactic for socialists to employ. So for the Russian socialist Marxists, for example, um, the strike and an emphasis on strike action, risk turning the workers' movement into a pi- primarily economic one that had no goals beyond improving um, conditions. Now I'm going to move quickly, last thing I'll say, from that early 20th century context to back to Britain. So Joe mentioned Taft Vale, mm. so a moment when workers, are, where trade unions are no longer held financially liable for costs incurred by strike. So Taft Vale represented a sort of was a high point of a process of development that led to trade unions no longer being seen as sort of gangs, criminal gangs or conspiracies, right? So they weren't treated in the law as uh, criminal organisations. And what you see from that moment on is Taff being used as a precedent by workers' movements across the world to ensure that trade unions aren't treated as sort of criminal gangs. So in that sense, some trade union culture or some trade union principles flow outward from the UK. But what's interesting is that the UK, after the Second World War, especially in the 1970s, began to see a process of retrenchment after a period of radicalism from the 50s to the 70s, where there's lots of sort of undirected or not centrally coordinated strike action. You see a clampdown on the rights of trade unions to organise and strike. So for example, trade unions are asked... To ballot um, in advance of industrial action. Um, There are rules established in the early 80s under Thatcher of course around secondary picketing so you can't get other trade unions sort of coming to your pickets and I think 2016 when we see the Trade Union Act is really a culmination of that of a long historical development that actually means the UK has some of the most draconian or the most draconian trade union legislation in Europe so I think there's a sad irony that places where strike action was first developed as a powerful tactic of working class economic and political organization is now seeing it rolled back to the bone and not far off um, being comparable from the u.s context Mm. i think that's all i'll say on that
0: that's great it's really interesting what you were saying about this division between the political and the economic so in the lenin speech that i mentioned one of the things that he says is you know, strikes encourage uh, the workers to see their employers as as deeply problematic, and to see the relationship between them as as adversarial. But also, it encourages them to see the relationship with the government as adversarial, because the government shows itself to be on the side of the employers. You know, sending out the troops to to crush the workers and so on. So it's interesting there that he draws that that relationship more closely between them
2: sorry could i say something briefly on that yeah. so, so so one way to think perhaps about strike action is that it's a practical event that changes the sort of consciousness that individuals have of their own situation So it has an immediate practical effect, but it also has the effect of revealing a wider structure of social and political relations that some workers might not have been aware of and become aware of through, say, police repression um, or the collusion between the state and their employers. So there's also an effect it has on the ways in which ordinary working-class workers uh, and the working-class movement see the political system operating and link their own lives to
3: political change.
0: Great, thank you. Perfect moment to bring in Martin.
3: So, uh, I think uh, both Joe and Wasim have covered a lot of uh, a lot of the ground there um, that I'd want to to talk about as well. I think that idea that um, that a strike, seen as one form of industrial action, on a continuum with other forms of, of possible industrial action, um, is in a way a kind of mechanism for reallocating power within the within the employment relation. I think, as, as Joe emphasized that, that, that's certainly, I think, a very um, important way of thinking about um, about the nature and role of, of strikes. There's, there's a way in which, I think, philosophically, there's something quite puzzling about what a strike actually is, especially if you start from fairly sort of liberal or individualist kind of premises and you think about kind of the liberal freedom of contract and if, if you think about just the, the employment relation as a kind of bilateral relationship between an employer and an employee a strike is then this kind of interesting um, phenomenon where in, in the very nice terms of uh, the political theorist Alex Gurevich who's written very, I think, revealingly recently about about strikes. He says, "What a strike is: you're quitting work without quitting the job, <coughs> right? So you're, in one way, perhaps, um, sort of not keeping up the terms of that kind of bilateral relationship, whilst you're also at the same time sort of now retaining uh, retaining a claim on the job, even though you're not not participating." Um, in, in the work that that would normally go go along with it. Now, I think as Wazine, um emphasises, it's really striking, kind of how much of an outlier the UK is, where that kind of very individualistic understanding of the employment relation um, really has a kind of ascendancy here, such that under British kind of uh, you know the the kind of British approach to thinking about. Um, about trade unions and about uh, strikes, it becomes much more of a, uh, a puzzle to think how you can quit work but, but retain uh, retain that connection to, to the job. Whereas, of course, in many other jurisdictions, the right to strike, the right to engage in that kind of uh, industrial action is seen as you know, either as a human right or as a constitutionally um, protected uh, essential. So I think there's, there's definitely... Um, a different way, perhaps in some ways a kind of less individualistic way that thinks of the employment relation as a kind of central feature of how we organise our societies and then thinks about the way states kind of regulate that employment relation not as something that should sort of start from a framing in terms of that just simple bilateral relationship but that starts from a kind of broader sense of what the demands of of a just society might be and that then, you know, creates some sort of uh, constraints on how the employment relation can work that might in some ways be quite quite different to how we we'd think about um, that relationship if we start from a more uh, individualistic uh, beginning but one, so in preparation for this I, I just thought okay that it 's very clear i think if one starts from a more sort of socialist um, theoretical starting point how one can sort of defend the the importance of of strikes as a kind of very important kind of agency that trade unions can have but it's very interesting I think how despite the kind of surface puzzle um, from a more liberal perspective of making sense of the strike as a kind of uh, something that might deserve protection in law you have some of the most important figures of sort of British 19th century and early 20th century uh, liberalism Mm -hmm. defending the strike. So John Stuart Mill says uh, in The Principles of Political Economy that the strike is an indispensable means of enabling the sellers of labour to take due care of their own interests under a system of competition. Strikes, therefore, are not a mischievous, but on the contrary, a valuable part of the existing machinery of society – Um, Or Hobhouse, Leonard Hobhouse, in his his book Liberalism, says that the emancipation of trade unions was, in the main, a liberating movement because combination was necessary to place the workman, gendered language, but, you know, the worker, on something approaching terms of equality with the employer and because tacit combinations of employers would never, in fact, be prevented by law. So the thought is that capital... Uh, Comes ready organised. I mean, this fits (laughs) with what Joe was saying. You know, the the interests of employers. They're already um, they're already um, uh, you know they they come just you know if you have a a firm with many uh, employees but one um, you know one one. but just, you know, one, one large firm, there's a kind of degree of organisation there. Or, you know, more broadly, the interests of capital tend to kind of come uh, quite well organised to begin with. So even on, um, you know, the, the, the sort of impeccably liberal starting point, the sort of non, non-socialist assumptions of someone like Mill or Hobhouse, there's a sense in which you could think of the strike and the importance of having some legal protection for, for strikes as a way of kind of ensuring the value of freedoms within, uh, within mm. the labour market. Because if you didn't have that there, the sheer scale of the, the asymmetry in power mm. between employers and employees would mean that those kind of market freedoms were simply without value for, for workers. So, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll stop at that.
0: Fantastic. So we've talked quite a lot then about strikes as an effort to kind of rebalance power or something like that. But then we know that some strikes are unsuccessful at doing just that. So could we say a little bit more about what makes for a successful strike? What what are the ingredients of a strike that goes well? How do we determine whether or not a strike has been successful?
2: Uh, Well, I'll step forward then. Uh, (laughs) I guess I'll speak partly as a sort of uh, practitioner, which is odd. You don't get many opportunities to do that as an academic. But um, from organising a sort of relatively small, now quite large, trade union branch, one of the things you really feel acutely is that in quiet times, when you're not striking, you really rely on the work of your most militant, most committed, most activist Mm -hmm. uh, political agents, essentially. Then the difficulty when you're trying to move lots of people who are not so politically committed into action, is to find some way of joining the political goals and aspirations and economic demands, uh, (laughs) welding them together, so to speak, so that you can carry forward people who maybe aren't so committed to industrial action. And that is quite hard to do without losing, without compromising constantly with the sort of silent majority that are part of... Uh, a lot of workplaces and workforces. Um, And I don't think there are really any ready-made plans therefore, for how successful strike action pans out in various places because of this thing about there always being demands that go beyond the immediate economic situation that everyone in the workplace will have, right? So you're not just trying to see whether people are willing to stay out on strike because of this one particular thing. There's often a whole host of other grievances that you're trying to weld together or get people to help you weld Mm -hmm. together.
1: Yeah, and I, I would follow on from that. I think a lot of the research that, that I do looks at solidarities mm-hmm. and how you mobilise people to recognise that they have solidarities because part of, of encouraging people or people seeing a need to take part in... Act, again, I'm going to call it industrial action rather than just strikes mm-hmm. because um, industrial action can take many forms that isn't necessarily withdrawing your labour mm-hmm. that can be incredibly um, effective. So I think a lot of the time... You might want to use this language of making the personal political. You know, so at what point does a workplace issue that you have connect with other grievances, and you actually see that there is a thread that connects all of these that requires a collective response? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, there's different ways in which you then mobilise people, and like you say, maybe those people that you would traditionally say sit in the silent majority actually step forward and and say that affects me too and i think the role of you know like a branch activist in, in a union that's ends being their role a lot of the time actually um articulating where solidarities are demonstrating them and demonstrating the action together um is way more effective because you know much like martin was saying um whether capitalists or industrialists or you know whatever the kind of regime that you're organizing within um, whether they have ready-made interests or whether they just benefit from a disconnected set of regulatory mechanisms which mean that they benefit um, they are a kind of a, a ready-made group of people who at least their interest is to keep on appropriating value. So at that point, you have to find out a way to allow people to acknowledge that they have a set of interests and that there are solidarities there to be forged. And I think that that's... Because strikes, you know, how do you say if a strike is successful? Do you get all of the demands that you went into to get... Maybe not. Does that mean the strike wasn't successful? I don't think so. I think it depends on whether you shift the narrative and discourse. Does something that was seen as impossible actually become part of the terrain of a new workplace regime? Um, Do the lowest paid workers benefit, but not everybody else? So I think I I would be really um, careful to kind of use that language of either successful or not successful because I think the legacy of... Um, people feeling confident from action, even if the result wasn't exactly what they intended, um, of raising expectations about what you can demand and expect from work, um, is really, really important. Whether or not you get, you know, everything on your wish list.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Fantastic. So I think I'd agree with that. Obviously, there's a, one way in which you can think about a, a strike being more or less successful um, in terms of its the explicit demand of that um, industrial action, but. Of course, I mean, in a way, it goes back to um, what E.P. Thompson said about the the Chartists, right? So the Chartists didn't get the uh, the People's Charter that they were campaigning for, but you know that action, maybe obliquely, maybe in an indirect way, had an incredible um, an incredible sort of set of consequences in terms of the development of solidarity, mm-hmm. the development of a sense of kind of individual and collective political efficacy. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it, it seems to me that that very often um, when you have what are in many places very hierarchical um, employment relations and a sense where work can become a kind of venue for, for disempowerment, cynicism, detachment, um, all, all, all the sorts of um, bad psychological consequences that work can generate mm-hmm. and which then... You know, might undermine our sense, you know, as citizens that we've actually, you know, got common projects that we can realise that we actually can kind of engage um, as citizens within the kind of democratic public sphere and make things happen. I think one thing that that can really go well when a strike um, is successful in mobilising people, in creating relations of solidarity, in creating. A sense of kind of shared political efficacy is that it can have sort of longer run, Mm -hmm. long on, uh, knock on effects within the kind of broader uh, political culture, both within particular workplaces and and more broadly, that don't very easily get captured if we just think about the success or failure of strikes in terms of the realisation of immediate demand. So I think... Um, it's very important when we think about strikes to think about that kind of broader social and political mm-hmm. context and, and to kind of judge them as well by, by those standards.
1: And I think I'd just add to that, as someone who studies industrial disputes, it's really unusual for a dispute to kind of be fully over, quite whatever that means, like under a two-year period, you know, they, they really, in in this current um historical period they they run and run so if uh, at what point do you quantify however you would quantify anyway just how successful a strike was you know if after two years one of the managers who was most detrimental to the workplace regime leaves because their working life has been made intolerable because of actually the resistance that's been generated does that count as successful i would say so for the longer term of that workplace can I
2: give an yeah. example of a yeah. failure? Yeah, <laughs> Quite a major failure. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, sometimes strikes, obviously, an industrial action fails disastrously, So I think this goes to... What Martin was talking about, citizenship and understanding your place in relationship to the state and what the what agenda the government has in relation to the strike. So, in the early Reagan years, uh, the air traffic controllers um, turned down uh, an offer from the from the government government employees um, that they didn't like because they thought they could actually go out and strike and win something better. They had actually, as a union, backed Ronald Reagan as they thought he'd be sort of sympathetic. Um, They lost, and Reagan fired the whole lot of them. That's 11,000 workers. So that's a whole trade union organization, zip, Um, gone. And that really, in my mind, in the history of disputes is an indication of, well, special circumstances, of course, but, you know, Thatcher, Thatcher at the other end of the Atlantic uh, smashing the mine workers only a few years later. But it brings home how unions do have to read the wider political situation really carefully if they're mounting even a medium, small medium-sized strike, because you'll run into things like public support, um, now incredibly important, seeing as you can't have secondary picketing. So it's that political... It's that set of political demands and choices and relationships that... You, also makes or breaks strikes in industrial action.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. There's there's a lot A lot that we could talk about here and at this point I want to bring in our audience so in a second I'm going to ask the panel a bit more about the ethics of industrial action uh think a bit more about you know why should we why should we consider strikes a last resort um but for now does anybody have any questions that they'd like to ask on some of the material we've just heard Can
5: we wait for the microphone? Here we go. And then. Okay, thank you. It is like that you are talking about strike. I'm an economist. I mean, to try to understand that from an economic point of view, strike, democracy is kind of luxury. And can I say that when we are very developed, such as the UK and the US, you can encourage kind of strikes. While you're in a developing stage, such as in India and China, perhaps we shouldn't do that way. <clears throat> Another I mean, the related question is that uh, <clears throat> on the website, your slogan is very striking. I mean, it's like that, the workers of the world unite. That is from Karl Marx. Mm-hmm. It's like when we talk about strikes, it's about the workers. And when the workers working class, took power such as China, we Communist Party is a working class party party. Should we still encourage or let the strike going?
4: Thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you very much.
4: Uh, thank you. Uh, capitalism's only goal is to make all the working class slaves at the most profound way possible. And the way it achieves that is through institutions... Uh, sorry, so, it's, but my, uh, so the next layers are possible. But uh, capitalism and business are totally different things. In our ed- schools like LSE and Oxbridge, who are owned by the capitalists Lock, Stock and Barrel, they teach that business is about being beyond the workers and separated from the workers and not part of that uh, ecosystem. So this is inherently introduced at the very first stages of our business leaders and leaders of politics because most uh, politicians in history have come from Oxbridge and their goal is to support the capitalist. So the issue is, uh, yes, strikers are doing a great job, but they're in actual fact on the same side as business leaders and people are enterprising. They're the same and working for the same goal. It's just that institutions like the LSE and Oxbridge create a horrific and profoundly disgusting division between these two groups. That's Oxbridge's job. Wholesale is to do that. And it's the history of Oxbridge is utter proof of that. Should we say the word genocide? Economic genocide? So, uh, yes, I think uh, strikes are great. But they, in actual fact, fighting the wrong people... Okay, thank you very
0: much much for those questions. So we've got the question about whether um, democracy and strikes are a luxury and whether they're appropriate in contexts where the workers have taken power and the question about um, capitalism's goal, making workers slaves.
2: Uh, I'm happy to respond. Um, So if we're... There's one comparator, which is industrialised democracies with high uh, standards of living, and then you have countries like where my family from, India, where um, workers are in a much... have much lower purchasing power, they have much less economic power. Well, there's a moral question first, which is whether workers have a right to go on strike at all, and my answer to that would be yes. I think workers have a right to withdraw their labour, but there's also a wider economic point there to make about how redistributing wealth and spreading wealth more equally in societies like India, for example, um, is beneficial to the economy at large. It increases the purchasing power of consumers, it generates economic growth. Um, And my view is that strike action, industrial action and trade unions are one of the most powerful mechanisms for achieving that redistribution. Mm -hmm. So there is a powerful case that for the rapid development, of nations that have, say, uh, low GDP, actually strong unions are really important um, to generating growth. Um, the other thing I'd say is about states where, about socialist regimes which claimed to be run in the name of working class power, the Soviet Union and the, and China under the Communist Party. Well, two things there. I suppose the point is that. In the case of the Soviet Union, for example, I know more about that case, Um, the state claims to be run as an organ of working class power, but in practice, trade unions and all forms of workers' self-organization were turned into state organs, right? They had no independence. Uh, They were essentially company unions, you you could say. So... In those circumstances, the people running those states clearly thought that workers shouldn't be allowed to go on strike. But the point is, these were regimes born out of revolution, and what actually happened is that workers' demands for self-organisation were crushed pretty quickly. So the Soviets in Russia in 1917 and 1918 were independent sources of of power. They had freedom of debate within within them, uh, and... The new regime saw them as threats to central control. So I think the thing—I think the thing to think about when we look at the history of state socialist regimes is actually to see how they've suppressed working class self-organisation, not how the working class, when they've been in power in these regimes, have then decided strikes are a bad thing. I don't think that's how we should look
3: at it. So I think I'd agree with with all of that. Um, so you know, we've seen in well. Think back to the 30s. Keynes said it was a stylized fact of capitalism that that the um, the relative proportions of factor shares going to labor and going to capital were were constant over time. Right? That nothing really shifted. Right? And you know that that could be taught. You know, sort of 70 or 80 years ago is just how how economies work. Now, of course, what we've seen everywhere, both in developed and in developing countries, is this huge shift in terms of factor shares away from returns to labour and towards mm-hmm. returns to, to capital. And, you know, if anything, those have been sharper changes in a shorter time in, um, you know, in developing economies than they have been um, even in in the uh, the more developed industrial countries. So I think we seems absolutely right that if we care about um, the distribution of economic returns, you know, whether that's in um, you know in a country like the UK or whether that's in you know in India or, or China or whatever it might be, trying to think about what the institutional preconditions might be of having an economic settlement that's more egalitarian, that does more actually to, to make sure that you know that workers as well as capital owners are getting a, a, a share of that that economic growth is, is something that you know if you think about the range of institutions Actually, existing institutions that might do that—it doesn't seem like there's anything that would do better than unions, right? Unions are a tried and tested institutional mechanism for trying to arrest that that kind of um, uh, you know decline in the um, in the in the labour share of economic returns. I mean, today we had um, Angus Deaton's um, uh, the, the sort of announcement of his his commission with the the IFS, where you know he was uh, talking there about you know one of the factors that explains um you know the the very worrying levels of inequality in the uk is to mm-hmm. do with kind of declining union yeah. density and and you know where um, in you know wherever we're we're worried about inequality i think we we ought to be worried about about union density on on state socialist regimes um so it seems to me that whether a regime calls itself capitalist or socialist, mm-hmm. um, it's very. Um, if you know, if if we think that part of what it might be to be on the left, to be progressive, to be socialist, to be you know, might be that we that we care about um, the distribution of of power, mm-hmm. right, then having. Powerful unions within different industries, having um, having sets of institutions that actually, in terms of people's day to day experience of of of, um, of their working lives, kind of draws power out of the centre and creates kind of more sites of um, of, of of contestation, of more <coughs> um, more place, more um, um, more opportunities for political agency, more. Uh, more opportunities for kind of solidarity um, uh, among different groups of, of workers. That, it seems to me, is, um, you know, if we're egalitarians, then, uh, you know, we should, we should be in favour of institutional structures that disperse power. And I think that's, you know, that, that should be the case <laughs> in regimes that think of themselves as socialist, even, you know, as much, if not more so, than, than those that don't.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on this idea that um, striking is a, a luxury of democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, can any, can anyone or everyone strike? Um, to, to, to go back to what was said earlier, it's really difficult to strike in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly difficult. I think the idea that because we're in um, a kind of advanced democratic country, that, you know, striking is something that is easy for us to do and is therefore a luxury is, is a myth. And if we take um, the more sort of historical... Um, perspective that I outlined at the beginning you know there have always been people who for striking was a serious financial penalty
4: you know I'm
1: not sure anybody really can afford to strike when they do it and one of the reasons why I really enjoy researching um, anarchists in Spain who were working in Gibraltar is I couldn't think of people who were kind of less equipped to strike in terms of you know having a financial buffer to help them out they just didn't but they were on strike all the time. Um, They believed in something called the impossible demand, um, which um, in Sonsbane at the turn of the 19th, 20th century, um, anarchists would make these demands of their employers to make concessions and apologies to any spanish speakers in the room but these were called <laughs> los tres ochos um, was a common one so this is the idea i think very much to echo um theme, that you would have eight hours for sleep eight hours for leisure and, and then eight hours on the working day but the point of the impossible demand was that once your demand was met you would return to your employer and demand something else because you didn't really want that demand you, you wanted the Um, the the tussle, and there was an Andalusian factory in my research after they'd secured Los Tres Ocho they went on to demand that that eight hour day um, comprised of seven and a half hour breaks Which I mean, if my employer would give me that, well, that would be fabulous. Um, Because the point, of course, isn't to get concessions from their employer for for these anarchists. It was to have the impossible demand to go unmet so that they could take part in a general strike and and battle towards something more. So I think, you know, it's very much this internalized logic of of kind of capitalism that strikers um, are doing something that is a luxury to them and, you know, should really put up with their lot. so, yeah, I just sort of wanted to position that and say that it's not a position that I would um, subscribe to, either in an advanced democracy like ours or in, you know, the kind of economy that my Spanish anarchists found themselves in at the turn of the 19th, 20th century. Wonderful. Thank you. So let's think a little bit...
0: Sorry, no, no, we, we can't take... Um, thank you very much, but we're just going to move on. We're, we're just going to move on and then we'll come back again and have a more discussion about audience questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, at this point, we're going to talk a little bit about ethics of, of strikes. Um, and here I want to talk a little bit about the idea that strikes are often seen as, as a last resort. So, you've already said, Joe. well, industrial action, um, you know, happens across a spectrum. Why, why see strikes as a last resort? Um, should workers of all sectors be permitted... To go on strike. Um, so, can we have a, a yeah. start thinking about that? Should we start with Martin?
3: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, as Joe said, that there are there are costs attendant on on striking. Costs for the workers in terms of lost wages. Costs for in terms of you know the kind of broader disruption of um, um, of, of of stopping work. Such that if if there's a way of achieving um, some of the demands that, that one might have as a, a union member without, uh, without having to strike, then it seems reasonable uh, to try and pursue those those other uh, mechanisms to do that. And where it seems like a, a large part of the role of the strike is as a kind of backstop, right? It, mm-hmm. It's as the, um, the kind of underlying guarantor of... Workers actually having some power and some voice and some standing in their um, deliberations and negotiations with with management. It's the fact that you have got the um, the option of striking that, that means then hopefully, when all's going well, that you're able to to have um, some some say in terms of deliberation about um, about the direction of um, uh, of the um, uh, of that that firm or that that enterprise. Um with regard to um uh, you know what we don't really have in Britain very often, in very many places, but if you did have a more democratic economy, if you did have more um deliberation in you know in more industries between um workers and, and management, then you could you could imagine a, a a system, a more democratic economic settlement where it was just the fact that that striking or, or particular forms of industrial action were there in reserve was part of what explained having a more uh, democratic uh, settlement. But that hopefully you wouldn't then have to use it that that often. I mean, one one problem that that we have, I I guess here, which um, I mean, perhaps uh, you know, if, if one thinks about the kind of university. Um, strike uh, last year in, in the UK is that we have um, si- a situation where th- there isn't a particularly strong uh, tradition of, of kind of deliberation between management and workers, and where you know the the option of the strike actually has to come fairly fairly quickly, given that there perhaps aren't the other avenues that there ought to be for pressing uh, pressing particular kinds of concerns or, or, or demands. Um, with regard to, um, I mean, the, the issue that, that Sarah raises about the ethics of, of striking, I think if we had a better um, labour law settlement, if we if we had um, if we had a, a, a better system of labour labour law in the UK, mm-hmm. what you'd like to um, have, I take it, is that for those um, for those sectors where. We might have reason to think that it it would be you know too costly for workers to go on strike, whether that's in um, you know in, in um, you know the the fire service or the mm-hmm. um, or uh, you know parts of the NHS or whatever it it might be that we could have some other kind of mechanism, whether it's some form of um, independent binding arbitration or or some kind of something else that could sort of play that role as a um as as a kind of guarantor for more equal power relations within relations between employers and, <coughs> and workers um obviously where where we where we don 't have that we 've just come up against i think what you know might often be um, just very quite difficult ethical dilemmas where um, where you know obviously there, there could be circumstances where the the kind of political and economic gains from striking would just have to be weighed against the other kinds of social costs that, that go along with that. Mm. But I mean, I think that just you know, e- even, even for those of us, let's say, working in higher education, mm. we, we were very uh, aware of the costs of strike activity in terms of our students, even if um, we'd be kidding ourselves if we thought we were the most vital workers in the economy. Mm. Um, but I think in, in some cases, um, we we just face the pull of of, of competing values, and there's mm. you know there's going to not not be uh, much that one can do to to avoid that, that difficulty.
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you would expect me to say this as an industrial relations scholar, but um, the ability to strike is essential, um, and it's one of the um, unfortunate things about the current law that we have in in the UK that um, workers having gone through all of the incredibly bureaucratic and administrative processes to ballot for strike action can still have that action um, deemed um, illegitimate and and not be able to pursue it. Um, To to go back a few decades, when Tony Benn um, was the uh, Minister for Energy, one of the main reasons he opposed nuclear energy was not necessarily on on kind of environmental grounds, um, but that it it would pose a threat of workers to be able to withdraw their labour Um, because of obviously having to kind of take care and not be able to just walk off-site. And I think that... that's really important and I always think of that when arguments come up about whether or not we should have restrictions on the right of people who work in so-called you know, essential services and I think well if we think those services are essential maybe we should ensure that the employment practices within those industries um, never deteriorate to a, a, a place where people would want to withdraw their labour and I think that if we look at people who work in prisons as serious issues when people who have legitimate grievances and, and health and safety concerns with their workplaces who are then in a position where they cannot with Withdraw their labour. Um, so I think that that's one thing that really needs, as far as I'm concerned, um, asserting. If we're talking about the ethics of striking, is the ethics of people um, to be able to to walk away from from. It doesn't have to be a dangerous or bad job, but just reasons for which they think there is a reason to do that. Um, I think that's really important. Again, not to kind of bar everyone, but, you know, there are <clears throat> also other types of, of, of action, you know, supplementary action, which can be just as um, successful as strike action, depending on, on what you do. You know, we often still use the language of a factory when we talk about strikes, and I think this sometimes leads to people saying, you know, we, the withdrawal of labour is all we can ever do. And for me, yes, you always have to have the withdrawal of labour as, as key leverage, but... Um, You know, people in factories don't just withdraw their labour. They do go-slows. They take part in sabotage on the production line. Um, And I think that, you know, we can take um, inspiration, I think, from that type of disruptive um, type of behaviour as well, or misbehaviour, if you'd like to think about it in that sense, and how you can withdraw your labour maybe without strictly doing so or disrupt the capitalist process. Because that's what strikes are. Mm -hmm. They're about disruption. And I think this idea of, you know, um, the ethics of striking and whether or not you should, mm. strikes are supposed to disrupt things. That, that is the point. There is no such thing as a perfect strike that doesn't disrupt anything. And if, if the point as a group of workers is that you've been making demonstrations through to your employer um, and you feel they are legitimate and your employer continues to ignore them, then that disruption, it might be the last tactic to you, but I don't think you have to do a performative, duty-bound, it is our last tactic, you know, for very much the kind of reasons that we discussed um, in the intro, that your goals might be bigger than getting a eight-hour shift full of 7.5-hour breaks. You know, it, it might be something greater. Thank you.
2: Um, There's not much else to say, I don't think. But um, I I suppose I hesitate around the language of last resort in general because it is a very defensive language that suggests that strikes emerge because of accidental breakdowns in relations between management and employees when actually usually it's structural features of that employment relationship. So the reason to strike might pop up repeatedly every year, uh, say, in the US where a union's coming to the end of its contract, needs to negotiate another one. It's pretty... Expected that you might want to go on strike. Um, It is a last resort in the sense that you come to the end of negotiations and then have to strike, but it's not a last resort in the sense that, oh, whoops, that just happened. Mm. Uh, I think until you have a significantly more democratised economy, um, unions actually can't think of strikes as last resorts. Like Martin said, they have to be the backstop, the guarantor of some power for workers. The only other thing I'd say is, I mean... The last resort language is defensive and used especially by uh, by professional associations or trade unions that are more like professional associations than standard trade unions. Think of the BMA, British Medical Association, or police federations. Um, In those cases, normally what happens is in order to keep their professional sort of identity, they will make arrangements to ensure that, say, patients are not hurt in the process of taking action as we saw with the junior doctors strike Um, but it's also the case that governments are anxious to expand the definition of essential services right Mm -hmm. Um, last thing so in 1919 there was a police strike uh, in the UK Mm -hmm. and after that There was legislation passed to stop these essential workers, essential to public order, going on strike. So what you then had was a police federation agrees never to go on strike and just instead voices its demands in various ways. And in a way, you can think of lots of professional associations as being like that, saying we will never strike uh, except as the last resort. But as we've seen, the balance of power in the economy now is such that large groups of workers, uh, large swathes of industry, of the economy, f- have people who would never dream of going on strike or in essential services, but probably need to use that last resort in order to stop their pain conditions being driven down sort of cataclysmically.
1: And, and just to add to that, you know, safety. Not, you know, if you think about firefighters in the UK who have been combating consistent cuts by this government, because if you shut... You know, a fire station. If you think about where I live in Leicester, there was plans to shut the central fire station. That meant that the station out of town would be servicing some of the places, some of the homes that the previous station that was supposed to be closed would have done. That drives up the response rate. So that means not only the firefighters when they're having to attend whatever the incident is have a greater chance of some form of injury or fatality, but also the people who are in that residence or building. So it's not just terms and conditions for the people in these essential services. It's you know, detrimental to their own health or the health of the people that they are helping. And you very much saw that in the, in the junior doctor's dispute as well. And I think that it's a balance, as you as Wazim really said at the beginning, about how you frame your dispute in order not to alienate the public but I think one of the reasons that the junior doctor's dispute was so successful in garnering public support was the slogan that they used which was not safe not fair because they were making the point that their you know not only was the contract not fair but it was not safe for them or for their patients to have those types of working practices thrust upon them and the same is very much if you if you look at the details of the firefighters um, disputes that they've had ongoing um ever since you know 2010 and i think that the right to strike and the strike not being the last resort is really really crucial as you say when we're actually talking about essential services where these you know what which can be life or death situations fascinating i'm not going to
2: quite play devil's advocate Mm -hmm. here but Mm -hmm. one major historical shift that makes language of last resort more prevalent is private to public sector trade Mm -hmm. unions and like in advanced industrial economies private sector trade union sort of rates and proportions have, have plummeted. It's much more common common to be uh, in a trade union for, in the public sector. Uh, and that means when you strike, you're often seen as attacking <laughs> ordinary citizens rather than mm-hmm. just your employers. So the relationship becomes one that can be presented as an attack on citizens and on the democratic order itself. Right? Yeah. And Thatcher was able to use that argument even for miners who weren't uh, who weren't providing you know, face-to-face services. So I think there is a historical shift that makes this language much more common.
1: Completely, uh, yeah. If you think about the service relationship, normally you have a manager or you know, a boss and a worker. When it becomes a service, that relationship becomes triangulated and the customer then becomes part of that managerial relationship and exactly what you're saying um, plays out in how disputes are managed and so on.
0: Wonderful, thank you. So we're going to open up again for some questions. I'll take a few, um, and don't be offended if the panel doesn't answer your question directly. They can choose which ones they want to uh, answer. Uh, And I'll take a question over here, first of all.
2: Right, so um, Martin mentioned greater democratic worker control as perhaps an alternative, sort of an ideal alternative to strikes to achieve the same ends, um, to what extent uh, do we have real-world examples? So, so obviously Germany is, doesn't have full democratic control, but there's greater um, worker um, participation in corporate boards, and it's been claimed that there's uh, lesser prevalence of strikes and there's a causal relation between the two. Um, does Germany provide an example of, 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 of a direction that maybe it's not available in the UK, but uh, that, that might... Be preferable, and are there other examples?
0: Thank you. And we've got a question here.
6: Yeah. Hi. Um, so, my question is about illegal strikes. Mm. So, given each of you said it's, you know, almost insurmountable obstacles in the UK and elsewhere to go on strike, uh, are there prospects? Or, you know, should, should people consider wildcat strikes, illegal strikes? And is there anything that we can learn from the history of strikes uh, about how that would happen and from different countries where workers have engaged in illegal strike action?
0: Thank you. So I'll put that back to the panel. We've got the question about the German example and the question about illegal strikes. Martin, do you want to take it? Okay. Um,
3: so it seems to me that there's two sorts of questions that it's very important to keep apart, two normative questions. So one would be uh, really a question of what what a better um, industrial settlement might look like. What would be a kind of, um, in in John Rawls's terms, if you think about the organisation of the basic structure of society, if you think about how the main political and economic institutions fit together. um, Obviously the way that the employment relation features as, as a part of that that set of institutions is going to be a, a, an aspect of tremendous significance for how people's lives go and, and for the way in which a, a set of institutions working together might or might not be justifiable to those those living under it. So there's, one, there's a kind of more ideal question about what, how would we think about the right to strike or the function of strikes if we had a magic wand and could create a very different um, industrial settlement, a very mm-hmm. different way in which work was was regulated. And a very different question is then to think, um, well, given our very different circumstances, given that we're a very long way from a, um, anything like a, a just set of institutions regulating um, the employment relation for, for people, how should we then think about the ethics of striking within that. So I think just one, one very general thought there is that it, it, it would be and this is a philosopher's answer rather than a historian's answer, but it would be very puzzling if, um, if it wouldn't in some circumstances be morally justifiable to have certain sorts of illegal industrial action under conditions where actually um, you know, we're very far from from the kind of just regulation of, of work and where um, you know we simply haven't got the sorts of institutional structures for dispersing voice or power or or for creating more um, you know the, the more egalitarian economic settlement that we would have if we had very different institutions. So that that's a very kind of abstract answer, but I think it would be um, it, it it would be very hard to see. Why it would be the case that you couldn't have a justifiable, a morally justifiable, illegal strike? Um, in answer to the question about other other kinds of settlement and whether, um, as it were, the strike might be a, a less necessary feature of um, um, of kind of union activity. Um, under circumstances where actually there were different different ways in which people could exercise voice and power within within work, I, I think that's that's um, you know exactly right. That a more um, a more kind of corporatist settlement, hopefully, would have points for the exercise of voice and power um, that that wouldn't exist in a more adversarial system. Now, I I don't know. Um, whether whether that's um, how that 's borne out exactly in the data but it, it wouldn 't be at all um, at all surprising um, if uh, an economy like Germany where actually there are more points at which the the voice of organized labor can can actually have have some role in decision making would would find ways of avoiding um, avoiding the strike as a as a way of, of kind of dealing with with uh, with disputes. Now, of course, there's going to be issues there about whether those kind of more corporatist or, or uh, co determinative um, arrangements really do enough in terms of dispersing power. So, you know, it might be that that you, um, in terms of um, you know, the voice for workers in particular. Workplaces. if you just have a lot of decision-making made at the industry level, you know, um, across many workplaces, it might be that actually it doesn't do enough and that, that you would get... Um, you would need to find other, other mechanisms. Um, one very interesting case, I think, is if one looks at um, kind of worker cooperatives. So one uh, very interesting organisation that doesn't have any trade unions uh, is Mondragon. So... Uh, from the other end of Spain to, to Joe's and to Lucian um, anarchists. so the, the, um, in the in the Basque country, there's a you know a large network of um, of cooperatives. Um, I, I guess probably the largest cooperative um, enterprise in 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 Spain or, or uh, network of, of enterprises. Now they have um, a different kind of. Um, so the, the, there's there's election. Of, there's one form of industrial democracy there, where there's kind of an election of, of management boards. There's then a kind of another structure that maybe has a kind of um, a, a sort of parallel um, function to what trade unions might have in a in um, in a capitalist enterprise of a kind of um, a somewhat detached sort of supervisory board. But but the thought being. In any case, that there are a number of points at which um, people's collective voice can find expression within uh, within the structure of, of, of that enterprise. Now, um, I, I don't know whether their exclusion of. Um, of unions and sort of traditional forms of, let's say, strike activity is all things considered justifiable. But I think you could at least see what a what the case for that would look like if you've got a structure that finds different ways for workers to kind of have their voice heard and to, to and for for power and voice to be dispersed within within those structures. But I think um, it's certainly an interesting sort of puzzle case for for thinking about. Um, uh, the relationship between one particular set of institutions, i.e., you know, kind of labour unions of, of, of the familiar kind that we that we have, as, as against the kind of broader issue, which is about um, the dispersal of power within within the economy
0: thanks so much martin You' want
2: to come in here yeah i 'll say something briefly to the uh, illegal strike action question, i think i 'll come back to the question you asked last time um, just enough time before so uh, on illegal strike action, well, I think the challenge for trade unions is to change the legislative framework mm-hmm. so that um, certain forms of strike action are no longer illegal because <coughs> give one example so the issue here is that strikers in the UK have no, con- there's no constitutional protection, right? So if you're not a member of a trade union, uh, your, em- your employer could fire you somewhere down the line after you've participated in strike action. There's one example from 2005, I think it was, of Gourmet Gate. Yeah. So catering workers at airports, right? Yeah. Um, and they took industrial action and their employer fired, what was it, 600 of them all in one go. So there's an issue there about if you take action uh, that is illegal uh, en masse, you open yourself up to that risk. There's an ethical question there about union organising and whether union organisers can put workers in that kind of risk. Now, one interesting parallel, one way you could think of illegal action is sort of like a form of civil disobedience, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think of climate strikes, um, you know, walking out of your workplace for something that isn't balloted on, clearly isn't ever going to be balloted on in... Uh, the framework of industrial relations then there seems to be a similarity there right Mm -hmm. but the problem is it's not like the school strikes where kids are walking out because you have people with ongoing livelihoods that might be threatened if they take that illegal action so i think there are ways to think about this that don't involve changing the law but then i have gourmet gate in the back of my mind Mm -hmm. Um, so the question obviously i have a personal interest in responding to questions about oxbridge is culpability for ecocide or economic side I take the question to have been about whether we're stri- whether strikes target the right sort of location of power, right whether they're aimed at the right um, source of political and economic power well I think i 'll just go back to the, that point about the way industrial action is framed in the u k legislatively is extremely restrictive of the sorts of causes you can strike over right. It's not just what action you can take in your workplace against grievances you have in your workplace. It's that other unions or other structures cannot strike against. Uh, uh, They can't support you. They can't take supportive strike action. So that's very limiting in terms of the goals, the aims, the sorts of... Um, structures you're targeting with industrial action. And I think for something like Oxbridge, there was an interesting case, actually. I'll come to this. Last year with the pension strike that academics took, where Oxbridge seemed to bear some special culpability for trying to uh, smash up the pension scheme for all university staff. So there was a debate about how Oxbridge could be targeted because it was specially responsible. But it seemed obvious that there was nothing within the framework of industrial action uh, or balloted strike action that would be relevant there. It would be more like social movement tactics, right? Mm-hmm. Protests, uh, embarrassment. PR attempts to embarrass them publicly in the press and in the media. So there is, as much as I want to say strikes historically used to be political and economic more than they are now in the UK, mm-hmm. there is a question about what, what strike action, well, which goals strike action can actually... Um, achieve or get you towards and in some cases like the climate movement the climate strike movement it might not just not be the right model
1: yeah. i think mm. i would echo that just to <clears throat> answer your question as well that because of the very kind of constitutional trade unionism that we've had in the uk so you know british trade unions have never tried the impossible demand it isn't you know they've always very much kind of worked within the framework that they've adopted and i think that that has sort of slowly led to the incrementalism of, of you know, the culmination of the 2016 Trade Union Act. And um, it's a massive problem, not just for the reasons that have already been outlined, but um, you know, as was just said, it also acts as a, a severe restriction, bottleneck limitation, whatever language you want to use, on what we can strike over. And it positions really crucial um, issues that affect us all, Uh, Something that you can't take action over because it's not a particular industrial workplace issue. And I think that much like at certain times in history when the law boxes you in in terms of what you can achieve, then you challenge the law. Um, One of the interesting consequences of the 2016 Trade Union Act is if you're a bit of a nerd like me, you will have read its previous manifestations before it came to power. It was far more restrictive than it currently is. And it it originally included kind of social movement activity, um, profiling people's social media, you know, to the point in taking part in big social disputes um, could have come within its remit. Um, Because of the pushback from trade unions, some of that far more kind of punitive um, and surveillance aspects um, were removed. So the, the, the kind of ironic issue is a lot of the um, strikes that weren't really strikes that happened last year with um, Deliveroo drivers and, and people on, on those types of contracts would have actually not been possible had the original Trade Union Act stood, whereas because they're not taking part in an industrial dispute, they're just not turning up to work that day, um, it actually falls outside of the Act Um, So it's kind of ironic that it's kind of, if you're in traditional employment, the Act is the most punitive form of industrial relations we've ever had. But if you're one of these very precarious workers that other disconnected regulatory mechanisms have made possible in the UK, you actually have access to far more kind of innovative ways of disputing with your employer because of your precarity and because you ended up slipping through the cracks of the Trade Union Act. So I think the challenge really for the trade union movement is to find sort of disputes and campaigns with system movements, whether that's a trade union or the climate strike to demonstrate the way in which the trade Union Act acts as a, a, you know, a, a an influence to deny us all opportunities to take part in serious campaigns that could seriously change the trajectory of our economy. The extent to which we are stopping freedom of movement, you know, all manner of serious challenges that just don't happen to fall within the workplace issue. And just finally, another example of this, if you're familiar with it, is a a union called ACORN which organises through households. It's not a workplace trade union. So it basically um, organises people who are mostly in precarious employment or at least very low-paid via the household. So it targets, you know, kind of bad landlords. And it helps people who are being evicted. And I think in an economy where people are moving jobs a lot, or, you know, have to move jobs a lot, actually looking at ways in which you can organise people and if that's the household. You know, in addition to the workplace, I would never suggest you you move, but I think it's an interesting way of saying how are we going to organise people against the forces that damage us.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. So we're just going to have a little bit more discussion and then we'll come back again for further questions. Um, What I'd like us to think about in this last part is... The current social and political context in which we find ourselves. So commentators often describe this as a time of a crisis for social democratic parties across Europe. uh, Rise of populism uh, in the UK. For a long time, we've seen austerity policies. What? How? How should we think of strikes in this particular context? Should we expect um, the number of strikes to rise? Do we think strikes are going to start looking quite? different um so can i start with you
2: sure uh, i think uh, uh these kinds of events almost uh, always someone quotes gramsci as, <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, uh, pessimism of <laughs> the intellect optimism of the will so yeah. uh, i think in western europe and the united states uh if if we're talking about the sort of political and economic structures that shape the trajectory of the trade union movement, then it's clear that lots of the energy that once fueled a sort of adversarial trade union culture has been sapping away for Mm -hmm. quite a long time. But I just want to zoom back because this is an area I work on to one context where democracy and social democracy specifically seem to be funny, and this is Weimar Germany, um, obviously. So a social democrat, a a loosely social democratic constitution with some internal contradictions, one of the largest Marxist, well, socialist parties in Europe, Um, socialist intellectuals were wondering why uh, they simply weren't able to achieve far-reaching reforms and also why the threat of fascism uh, was uh, intensifying at the end of the 20s. And one theorist, a labor lawyer called Franz Neumann, Kenti understanding what, understood how the hierarchical structure of workplaces, the feeling of powerlessness that uh, employees have in the face of highly rationalised, technologically sort of driven change in uh, con- forms of control in the workplace, would lead to sort of outlets people having outlets of frustration that didn't necessarily produce sort of rational, democratic outcomes. Fascism, as one example. So I think there is something to be said from the trade union perspective about how giving people a stake in the management and operation of their ordinary lives, their working lives, um, makes them better democratic citizens or more suited for thinking democratically and also makes them less likely to seek solutions that don't, aren't necessarily going to improve their uh, social and economic conditions. Um, there's also something one could say about race mm. and the trade union movement. Mm. Historically the trade union movement has had a patchy record race in almost any uh, Western European country. Mm-hmm. And there have been moments, for example, the Grunwick strike shortly before, in the, in the late 70s, where you saw migrant workers, Bangladeshi women in that case, really taking the lead and getting the support of other trade unionists. But those moments have been few and part, far between in the history of trade unions. I mean, You can see at moments where economic growth is slowing down, where populist ferv- fervor is increasing, actually... You do see trade unions and even social democratic parties, let's think about Norway um, at the moment, for example, that will back extremely exclusionary um, policies towards migrant labour. And you will see social democratic parties, as in Norway, talk about uh, repatriation rather than inclusion and integration. Mm. And ditching that approach that Ed Miliband once took, the idea that, well, the problem here is that people hate. Migrant workers, because this is a very charitable reading of why people hate migrant workers. I'd say racism is another reason. Um, they hate them because they undercut their wages in sort of uh, in sort of depress- already depressed regions of the UK. And the Miliband strategy was to say, well, we need to have some system whereby we can't have contracted or subcontracted workers undermining wages. The solution isn't simply to um, exclude migrants. Uh, that's not going to solve the system. You need some kind of increasing wages um the problem is you then got towards the election that he flunked uh, the um migration controls mug and i think that says it all about how trade unions and social democratic parties can be completely complicit in the rise of nativist exclusionary forces that won't be good for workers either
1: yeah i would i would agree with that and i think um not only has has tackling um you know, the, the myths around migration being being a problem, as in they haven't done it. I think that the same has been said with regards to austerity, which has obviously kind of fueled um some of those arguments. And I think that um Simon Wren, who's at Oxford, I don't know if anybody's read his book, um, the lies we are told um about the coalition government and the you know the excellent job they did in convincing people um that government finances work like households because it's like a kind of nice, tidy metaphor that works for people, and it's not the case. And New Labour, you know, much like the the migration mugs, kind of compounded that um, narrative as well when they accepted responsibility in in 07 and 08 for the financial crisis, Um, you know, that government spending was not the cause of that, but that they've allowed that to develop and therefore the kind of the solution to that was put forward as austerity and, and that kind of settled in. Um, and I think that that is the challenge, essentially, of, 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 of drawing that the conclusion um, that democratic solutions to economic problems really rely on is persuading people that the logic of austerity is false. And, you know, much like um, the argument that went before, that the, the logic that migrants are, are, you know, are kind of pushing down wages is false. And it takes people to, to step forward and make those arguments very clearly. And they're quite simple and easy to make, Um but we have a a kind of an environment, if you like, in the the UK where we allow far-right voices to grace our media in in numbers that just does not make sense to me, Um, and that allows these arguments to be naturalised. And then, in order to counteract them, you have to use the language of that naturalised discourse, which reinforces it. So even actually tackling it to say it isn't the case... Um, becomes an argument about the extent to which it is and i think that's quite a challenge um and it's i think one of the biggest challenges that we face right now
3: so i'm glad that uh Wasim reminded me of the obligation to um quote gramsci um <laughs> quite, i mean obviously with our, our uh, you know our, our current crisis consists Precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born, in this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear, and there's lots of morbid symptoms um, about. Um, So it seems to me that the point that John Stuart Mill emphasised, that a more democratic way of organising work, a more democratic way of organising the economy, could create... The conditions for having a more successfully democratic society. I think that point is just tremendously important, and it goes hand in hand with the thought that we can't really go on as we are with an economic settlement that's increasingly um, inegalitarian, where the, the the kind of um, runaway inequality with with um, you know a small number of people increasingly getting. Um, the lion's share of economic returns that that that's not politically a sustainable um, model uh, to have. Now it, it seems to me that both traditional labour unions and the kinds of organisations that, that Joe was talking about as well, things like Acorn and you know renters' unions or um, you know more informal um, uh, movement that that brings together people in more precarious forms of employment. That that those sorts of Um, those sorts of institutions that create solidarity, that help people collectively to recover a sense of of political and economic agency, that help people kind of collectively to come to a framing and and an understanding of their economic circumstances that then gives them a path forward to kind of charting solutions. That that, that those sorts of institutions are going to be of tremendous um, central importance. If there is going to be a, a a way out from, you know, this current disordered, unjustifiable economic settlement to something that that actually, you know, might, might function and be justifiable to people, um, in, you know, and, 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 you know, give us a path through. So I, Could they be enough? Well, I think they could be a huge part of the, the picture. And, I mean, what one might need is the small opening that one would get with... I mean, one thing that keeps us... Uh, that you know, create the the terrible difficulties that we have in terms of not having a sufficiently um, dynamic or egalitarian public culture in, uh, in 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 terms of British politics is exactly the fact that we have these incredibly restrictive uh, sets of labour laws and the fact that we don't have kind of fertile ground for the development mm-hmm. of, um, of of a more vibrant um, uh, union movement. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to just say something optimistic about the <laughs> Labour Party, um, rather than uh, you know looking forward, uh, rather than, than than backwards. I think it's very encouraging that what you now have is a Labour Party that that will back strikers and that will you know just come out very explicitly and. Um, express solidarity with with those engaged in industrial action, as you know, as, as the Labour Party did uh, when we were all on strike last year. You know, that was a very heartening thing to see. And if there's a future um, government in this country that were, let's say, to rewrite. Um, British uh, Union legislation along the sorts of lines that, that one sees in the very interesting document from the Institute uh, for Employment Rights, their manifesto right. for labour law, which would, I mean, to connect up with what, what Joe was saying about um, secondary action and sort of broader broader forms of, of industrial action that, that can be focused not necessarily on very narrow or very local terms and conditions mm-hmm. sorts of issues, but that could... Give the capacity to, to broaden that out. I think those sorts of changes in the kind of background labour legislation could then actually create the conditions under which you know we could hopefully see the emergence of um, you know a, a, a large change towards a more a more kind of um, democratic and a more egalitarian economic settlement. So that's my that's my hope. And Wonderful. Anyway.
0: Well, we've got five minutes left, so I think we have time for two nice, succinct questions and then last words from our panel. So we've got... Uh, I'm going to take these two questions at the back here. Nice and, nice and short, please.
7: <laughs> okay. M- my issue is the, the question of industrial democracy. And the current power structures mentioned by the last speaker in terms of the legal infrastructure, which is, in my view, very anti-union. Does the panel believe that despite what has happened in the past 40 years in terms of strike action, the can strikes really be considered a luxury, considering the redistribution of wealth Less pay, less at, with less strikes equals less pay, and the poverty and inequality that prevails since the capitalist crisis of 2008 can strikes really be considered a, a luxury, despite mm-hmm. all those?
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. And-
6: yeah, this is potentially uh, opens another kind of worms, but. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering the kind of framing that we have contemporaneously of industrial relations. I'm wondering if this isn't slightly a historical, given, you know, panelists have mentioned certain aspects of these kind of things, but how much more diverse the tactics of labor movements, actually before really the 1970s and the shop stewards movement in the 1970s were, in terms of the, like the amount of, you know, the Glasgow rent strike, all these kind of things, and the way in which, you know, workers and railways didn't get people out on strike. They'd sit down on the railway track rather than, you know, kind of... Um, I wonder if that doesn't distort our idea of what industrial action means. And I'm wondering, actually, as well, um, if uh, the panellists kind of comment a bit on the role of the trade union bureaucracy, actually, in quite opportunistically shaping that, um, in the sense, you know, in Unite, Rank, and File, you've got Unite bureaucrats handing uh, lists of uh, blacklists to employers and this kind of thing. And But obviously, the introduction of facility time, the kind of development of... Um, partnership relations with employers etc how this really actually does really distort our conception of what industrial action can be
0: thank you very much so i'm going to give our panelists one minute each to respond and wrap up and we'll start with you with oh, really? you okay
2: <laughs> um, so the first question is if i if i understood correctly it's about strikes being a lottery um was that was one? it
0: a luxury a lo- luxury
2: A luxury, luxury, sorry, yeah. Um, Well, I think uh, they're a necessity, but they're very hard to organise, which is why they seem like the luxury of workers who already have um, well-functioning trade unions with a lot of money behind them that are willing to support strike action and with the support of the public as well. So, you know, it's easy for junior doctors to go on a long strike in a way because they're able to say, look, don't you respect what we do? It's of value. But other other workers, for example, train guards or the RMT, have a lot more difficulty gaining public support, but they luckily they have a very strong union organisation. So I'd say it's not so much uh, a luxury so much as... (laughs) What looks like a luxury is actually a product product of an extremely inhospitable legal and cultural environment um, for trade unions, and that's the thing that has to be broken. I'm not optimistic about that, frankly, Uh, but I think we are kind of talking about the same thing. Um, On the trade union bureaucracy, so... um, Actually, I can't say that because it will get my regional trade union <laughs> office in trouble. <laughs> um, I think, actually, if we're, look- we're looking at a situation where lots of trade union, uh, paid trade union officials i really acutely aware that they're looking at a period of managed decline, right, of trade union membership, of what trade unions are doing. And I think in that period of managed decline, what they want to do is husband resources as best as possible, go out on strike very little. It's very hard to go on strike now. And I think that, to me, is the opposite of what's going to save the trade union movement, obviously. And I think rank and file initiatives and a plurality of tactics. I mean, we talked about illegal strike action there. But there are things that that activists can do that don't cross the line into getting all your members arrested, right? Trade unionists are not going to be able to be like Extinction Rebellion, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending Mm -hmm. on what you think of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But those initiatives have to come from rank and file because I think it's very rare for trade union officials to uh, try and inculcate a plurality of um, sort of, yeah, I'll stop there, a plurality of tactics
3: that might disrupt their hold over the membership and their control.
0: One minute, Martin. <laughs>
3: uh, this is a dangerous panel to be on to say anything about paid uh, trade union officials or those who might in the future uh, occupy such roles in, uh, in trade unions. Who, um, So I won't say much about um, that, but just say that on the contrast between what's a luxury and what's a necessity, I think what's a necessity is some kind of transformation of our economic settlement. What we have is... It's no good, right? And it's you know it's falsifying. It doesn't fit very well with um, a broader democratic culture. It, it's um, it's badly in need of replacement. So what what are the preconditions for doing that? Well, I, you know we need to find the institutions that we have that have got some kind of ability to catalyse change and that uh, have some role in transferring. Uh, power and then hopefully further down the road, transferring kind of economic returns within our uh, within the uh, the economies that, that we live that we live in. Now, unions are you know they may in some ways the vista may not look encouraging. There might be reasons for pessimism. There might be areas where it looks like a, a period of decline rather than optimism. But. You know that 's one of the kinds of institutions that we 've got, and I think we just have to um, if we want to see a different economic settlement, we just have to do what we can to try and help to build and develop those institutions um, and I agree entirely about the point about the, pl- the kind of plurality of different sorts of tactics and which I think connects with joe 's points about also the plurality of different kinds of organizations and institutions that are going to be needed as part of a, an ecosystem that, that shifts um shifts us towards a more democratic and a more egalitarian um society i'm gonna have to move on martin yes
1: joe yeah i i think um one of the things i think to refer to the the problem that you're raising is that particularly during the sort of 2000s that um you know a lot of trade unions went down that partnership model and that was really really bad it was not just bad for the members of those trade unions but it was bad more broadly in in actually end up being collaborators in quite a lot of new Labour's neoliberalism as opposed to actually putting up a resistance and we're really living with that legacy now um, what i would say is though i think that model is really dying not just because it was massively ineffective and led to unions hemorrhaging members but also because members from when those, those unions fought back and actually, develop different models. Um, sometimes you saw confederations rather than mergers to actually be more effective. And I think um, there is always going to be, to some extent, a bit of a disconnect between, you know, the kind of the technocrat and the rank and file because they've got different interests. One is thinking about the longevity of the organization as opposed to actually maybe the industry and the members um, and broader issues. But I think that the challenge for those of us that remain involved in our unions is to think about how you raise expectations and how you actually develop a different model that can fight and be responsive and that can make those connections that are going to be vital if we're going to actually be effective, not just for... The sector that we're in and the members, um, but broader. So I I kind of share your frustration of maybe what's gone, but I have a lot of hope that there can be a coordinated resistance.
0: Thank you. So thanks to all of you for the fantastic questions. And please join me in thanking our panel for a really productive discussion. Join a union, though. (laughs) Join a union,
4: yeah. (laughs)